Welcome to the 94th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, we will talk about this week's NBA action and talk a little bit about the start of college basketball season. So let's jump right in with a look at the NBA. And Patrick, let's start off with our usual bevy of questions. The most surprising wins this week. Well, the Jazz are involved in two of these, but obviously the Jazz being a great team, they're on the wrong end of that. Uh, it starts with the Magic beating the Jazz at the beginning of the week, 107 to 100. That might be one of the, wor- the one of the weirdest upsets of the year, other than obviously the two times that the Lakers have lost to the Thunder. But that's pretty much uh, this is almost the equivalent situation to that. Uh, the Magic a little bit better than the Thunder, but the Jazz maybe a little bit worse, depends on who you ask, than the Lakers. So it's probably a more even matchup. But um, the Magic, uh, I don't. Honestly, know how they how they've uh, pulled off this upset, but you know it happens in the NBA. It happens enough that I'm not too surprised. I mean, but for it to happen twice to the same team in the same week, which we'll get to what that other upset was later, uh, but it, it's surprising that it happens to the same team, especially a team that's so good at home too. Uh, but the Wizards beat the Bucks 101 to 94. This win with Giannis even on the floor, which is makes it even more surprising, although the Bucks have had a whole host of injuries throughout the whole year. I don't know if this is the first game Drew Holiday played or if he was playing in this game. He's been dealing with a lot of injury issues himself uh, this season, uh, and Chris Middleton's also been out for a while. Brooke Lopez hasn't played a game yet. Dante DiVincenzo hasn't played a game yet, so the Bucks are really just injured all over the place, but um, I'd still surprised they lost this game, and really the reason why I'm saying this one is surprising is because I thought the Wizards would fall at their first major test of the year. You know, the Knicks... Uh, played the Bucks this week too, and they were not able to win at home. And it was kind of one of those games that people thought you could see as one team trying to prove that it's really worth the hype that they're getting, and the other team trying to shut that down and say, hey, look, we're still the kings over here. You're still going to have to go through us uh, to win a title, to do anything in the East. And the Bucks proved it the opposite way, that it was them, that they're the champions deservedly so, even injured, they're going to beat a team who's just trying to get up to their level, and that the Knicks aren't on their level. So knowing that that happened, I was very surprised that the Wizards were able to pull off that win against the same type of roster. I mean, Bucks having the same amount of injuries. So uh, it is surprising. It's a very surprising win. Uh, but overall, I think it's it's still the Bucks getting, getting a little bit over their championship uh, season and kind of easing their way into this year without without Drew Holiday for a lot of it, without Brooke Lopez. Now Drew Holiday and Giannis are building up their synergy again, but now Giannis has a little bit of a minor injury, apparently. Uh, so, I mean, watch, see how many games he misses with that, but uh, it kind of went under the radar, and then all of a sudden it popped up before their game tonight that he's going to have that injury and miss that game against the Celtics, uh, which unfortunately is in my predictions, and a little, I guess it gives me a little bit of an excuse to be wrong on that game, but uh, hopefully I'm still right. Uh, then... The Pacers beat the Jazz, 111-100. to uh, The Pacers had a rough start to the year record-wise, but really, on paper, did not look terrible um, in terms of, like, overall play as a team, what their what their team makeup looked like. I think we all know that that team was in the play-in games last year. They're not, they're not severely lacking talent, uh, and they've been not necessarily underachieving, but pretty much, I, I mean... A little bit under expectations this season so far, and uh, this law, this beat, this win over the Jazz kind of proved that you know they still have enough talent to beat some good teams, uh, and maybe in the East because it's a little bit weaker, they're going to find a way to keep that going in the future uh, against some weaker opponents in the future. All right, what about your best teams with the losing record? 
I will start with the Boston Celtics, who are 5-6 and six on the year, just barely with the losing record, but Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, this team will still find a way to put together, put it together by the end of the year. I don't think they're a real contender at winning the East this year, to be quite honest. I don't. I just don't think they have what it takes. I don't think that... Uh, I just think that without Kemba Walker, without Gordon Hayward, that's not a team that you can really expect to contend. I mean, Gordon Hayward's been gone for more than a year now, but uh, I think last year proved that where they... I mean, they almost missed the playoffs, and they only took one game off the Nets. Granted, it's the Nets, but hey, the Nets did not win the title, so... Uh, there were clearly better teams that they could have lost to even in, in an even worse fashion. Um, so I, I guess my thing here with the Celtics is that I think they'll get it together, be a six or seven seed kind of a team later in the year. But so far have not shown that um, and have really just kind of sputtered out of the gate. And I think they have some very obvious issues that they need to fix. And I think they're going to fix them just because they have players who it's not just Jason Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown anymore where they're young guys. They're a little bit older. I mean, they're not, don't get me wrong, they're not veterans by any stretch of the imagination. They're just very good young players, but they have a lot of experience, a lot of playoff experience. They've dealt with much harder things than than being five and six at the beginning of the year uh, in the Eastern Conference, and I think that they'll find a way to fight through it, but for now, they're definitely on that list. Uh, the next team I'm going to go with the Atlanta Hawks are 4-8. and eight. I actually put them on this list last week when they were 4-5, and five, thinking they might turn it around. They've now lost three straight uh, since then. Uh, now at 4-8, and eight, obviously. And, I mean, that's that's really surprising to me because the Hawks were a team who were playing pretty much above expectations all of the regular season last year. And then their postseason run to the NBA uh, Conference Finals in the East was actually probably even more surprising than them being the fifth seed in the East in the regular season. And yet, after all that, with the young team who you would assume would get better uh, with with after that playoff experience, they've fallen off like a lot. Uh, I don't necessarily think, kind of like the Celtics, I don't think it's going to really continue. I don't think they're going to stay at whatever the equivalent of the 82-game version of 4-8 and eight is. I don't think that's going to happen to them. But I could easily see this team going through some of a regression that maybe last year they were overachieving a bit. Uh, and they might come back down to earth. I don't think they're actually a. Te- I don't think they're terrible. I don't think they're. But I don't think they're great. I don't think they're a serious contender. I think that some of the teams that are in the East that have kind of changed the scope of their rosters a little bit. You look at the Bulls as one of those teams. Uh, the I mean, not the Raptors as a serious contender, but the Nets have what the Nets have. Uh, then you have the Sixers, who once they get something back for Ben Simmons, will probably look even better, uh, assuming they do end up trading him, and I bet they will. But Um, I think just in general, the East is still as good as it was last year at the top, including Milwaukee, the team that the Hawks could not beat to try to get into the championship uh, or into the NBA Finals. So I think you're looking at pretty much the same field of teams in the East, and I just think that they might have just overachieved all of last year. I was never too high on them, even in the playoffs. I, I think they were deserving team. They won the series not because of luck or anything like that, but overall they weren't necessarily, I don't think, uh, Eastern Conference Finals level. I think that the Bucks and the Nets really, I think most people knew that whoever won that series was going to come out and win the NBA Finals after after knowing that if they had known that it was going to be the Hawks instead of the 76ers, I think both teams would have easily beaten the Hawks as the Bucks did. Um, and I just think that I don't want to trash them too much, but I'm trying to struggle to find the words here. They're not, I don't want to say bury them. I don't want to say they're a bad team because they're not. 
But I don't think they're a contender by any stretch of the imagination. So they're kind of probably going to stick in kind of that five to six range that I think the Celtics are going to stay in. I think they're a team at the level of the Celtics. Uh, I think Trey Young is pretty much the same type of player as Jason Tatum. Not exactly game style wise, but the production you're going to get from him and the roster around him is pretty much built the same too. So in my opinion, they're going to stay at around that level, and I don't think we should expect that much more out of them. Although, obviously, when you have a young team that claims a five seed, you expect that they get the experience, and then they get even better. And then they become a super good contender, a super high-level contender, like the Bucks have in the past few years. But sometimes it takes more time, and for a lot of teams, that's the case. And I think that is the case that we're looking at for the Hawks. They might stay in that same five to six range that they were, last, that they were in last year, this year, and then maybe next year really start to kick it into high gear, I think, and really start to come together as a team with uh, some more guys just playing better. Maybe they can deal with injury bugs better. Maybe they can get some better free agents, some older guys to help them out. Uh, but my final team, Portland, uh, not in the same situation as the Hawks. This is a team that we've always expected to be good, and really, they somehow always find a way to not be that great in the regular season. Uh, they have Damian Lillard. They have CJ McCollum. It's the same team. They, don't, they, don't, they lost Carmelo, which might be a bigger deal than people thought it initially was. Um, but... Overall, I mean, they've dealt with Yusuf Nurkic being out for almost a whole season, claimed a sixth seed without him, won a playoff series without him. They've done that before. They've done that multiple times. Uh, we can all recall when they beat the Thunder with Paul George and Russell Westbrook, there was another year where they weren't necessarily amazing in the regular season, but when it came to the playoffs, they were ready. Uh, and I think that might be the case this year again, but it's starting to become a worry with the with Portland that this keeps happening and uh you know, some very, very outlandish rumors of Dame Lillard requesting, not requesting a trade, but possibly should be one of those players that should be requesting a trade in the future, uh, were floating around last offseason. And I think this is kind of the mindset that we get into when you see Portland do this to open a season, five and seven. Uh, and then they end up, you know, in the six, seven seed range. They're not going to contend for a title if they're going to have to go through the best teams in the West. You really need to have a good record in the West to avoid not getting beat up in series against really, really good teams on the way there. Uh, the best team will always come out of the West just because it's so much of a gauntlet that you're going to find the team that's playing the best at the moment. Last year, that was the Suns. And I think we knew, and I think they were the two seed because they were playing well all year and they continue that through the playoffs. And that's just the way that it rolls in the West. And Portland has not been that team for a while now uh, since that, since the time they played Golden State in the conference finals. Uh, so I'm not entirely surprised that they're five and seven, but they are still a very talented team that is definitely underachieving. All right, well, let's flip it around. Who are the worst teams that still have a winning record? Well, the Raptors last year picked in the top five overall, and now all of a sudden they're seven and six. Uh, that's automatically going to be uh, one of the worst teams with a winning record. But I mean, I actually don't doubt the Raptors' talent. They might be a kind of barely above 500 team. I wouldn't be too surprised with that. But early in the season, those teams tend to be a little bit under 500, get it going later in the season, and then somehow claw their way to a 40 and 42 or a 41 and 41 kind of a record. Uh, to start very well, play a hard schedule, get tough wins against teams like the Sixers, that is what surprises me a lot about what the Raptors are doing so far. But I still don't quite believe in Fred Van Vliet and Scotty Barnes as a core of a playoff team, especially because of Scotty Barnes' youth. But, I mean, in the future, uh, and as a as a low level, not not championship contender, not East Finals contender, but maybe a contender to win a playoff series if they get the right matchup. I think they can stay in that spot, but uh, that does not make them one of the better teams with a winning record. Uh, as as we know, there are teams like the Celtics and the Hawks who do not have a winning record. So 
teams that are much more talented that still aren't playing better. So I have to put them on this list. And then the second team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now this one, I will not go with as much as I did with the Raptors. That team is not a playoff team. Unless all of their young talent, unless they were just masters of tanking in Cleveland where they somehow told their young players how to not play basketball correctly, told them the right things to do in film sessions, then say, but don't do it in the middle of the season. Do it next year. Save it for next year. We're teaching you for next year, but don't do it right now. Unless that's what they were doing, and I doubt that they were. Uh, I don't see how this team could have been so bad in years prior. Have They've had some great stretches a little bit. Uh, with Darius Garland going off and Colin Sexton going off, but and, and Andre Drummond too, but when he was still there, obviously. Uh, but we, the, the, it just always falls apart for them, and uh, I don't think that I'm going to trust a seven and five start to the season. And I believe they were also seven and three at one point, and have already lost two games in a row after that. So it might be starting to go downhill. I don't think they're a terrible team. I do think that they have vastly improved. But they are definitely not uh, going to be in the Eastern Conference playoffs without going through the plan. I can see them as a team that has an outside shot, though, to get the 9 or the 10 seed in East. It's, you know, always a little bit weaker in terms of depth. Uh, I could definitely see them snagging a 9 or 10 seed, and then, you know, from there, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, last year we thought the Warriors were going to claim that playoff spot, and they lost at home to the Grizzlies. So you never know what's going to happen from there. Uh, it looks like that's what's going to happen to the Cavs, though, in my opinion. Maybe a play-in team. If not, probably out of the playoffs entirely. All right, what about your underachieving teams? I think... My preseason, one of my preseason picks and the defending champions, both at one game over 500 or two games over 500 and uh, just at 500. I think the Lakers at seven and five, it's one of the ugliest seven and fives I've ever seen. Uh, the Cavs are playing not ugly games where they barely win and get seven and five. They're just not playing that hard of a schedule uh, because they're in the East and they're just, you know, teams are kind of easing into the year. They come out hot. The Lakers have not come out hot. They are 7-5, and five, not because of luck, not because of anything like that. They definitely don't have good luck because LeBron's been out for so long. Um, but I, I really think that this team is just not playing up to its expectations. They should be 8-4. and four, They should be 9-3. and three, They should be in that realm, not in 7-5. and five, Especially when you consider that two of those games were against the Oklahoma City Thunder. And if they were 2-0 and oh on the season against the Thunder, they would be 9-3 and three on the year. That's what they should be. And if anything... Maybe you take away, an, maybe to make a, a fair substitution, you give them two wins against the Thunder, but take away an overtime win against the Heat. But guess what? They're still eight and four uh, with that with that change. So I just think that they're they're just not playing as well as they could, uh, and we know the talent that that team has, and they could be a lot better. Uh, the second team I'm going to go with the Bucks at six and six. Uh, played some tough games, beat the Knicks, pretty good win there. I think that was last night actually. But uh, just overall, I don't see. The championship pedigree that we thought the Bucks would have, and again, it's mostly because of injuries. But uh, with Drew Holiday on the floor, Giannis back on the floor, they'll probably start playing better. But for now, they are still underachieving. Okay, what about your overachieving teams? Well, I think anybody who's ten and one at this stage in the year is bound to be an overachiever, uh, especially when it's not someone who's played the world's easiest schedule in the East and isn't the defending champions. If the Bucks were ten and one at this point, I wouldn't be too surprised. But the Warriors being ten and one. That's a surprise to me, and I think they not they haven't necessarily played a ridiculous schedule or anything like that, but they haven't played necessarily an easy one either, so these results are really good for them long term, and it shows that I think they're overachieving because I can see them going 10 out of 11 wins here and there when Clay Thompson comes back, but the fact that Clay is not here yet 
and they're already 10 out of 11 winning games is what they're doing. That's crazy to me. And the, and the craziest thing of it all, they're the number one defensive efficiency team in the NBA. They're only 16th in offense, uh, which, by the way, that does show that if you're <laughs> if you're number one in something and number 16 in the other, you probably shouldn't be 10 and one. Your offense should have let you down in a few more games than just one loss. But I will still say that is really impressive because the Warriors have Steph Curry. They're going to get better on offense as the season gets on. And by the way, he could take every single shot of the game for them. And they would probably end up fifth or sixth in offensive efficiency just because he's the only one shooting. They have that option whenever they want to to just let him go in a 60-point-per-game mode uh, like he did at the end of the year last year. So I wouldn't be surprised if that needs to happen by the end of the season. But if they're going to play like the number one defensive team, they're going to end up as a high, high seed in the playoffs. And they're going to be a tough team to beat because... They are playing so well on defense, and it's not easy to defend them. So that equation just makes for a very good team. Uh, the next team I'm going to go with, the Wizards. I think 8-3, uh, and three, almost the same version as the uh, as the Cavs, except for with an even better record. Uh, they have Kyle Kuzma shooting 6 of 9 from 3 in games, hitting two, hitting two shots in the final 20 seconds. Uh, Lakers fans will tell you that he's not going to continue that. I don't know, maybe he can. He does have the talent to, but... That's that's just one of those things that early in the season it might happen. Later in the season it might kind of revert back to the average, and we'll have to see what happens later in the year. But for now, the Wizards are definitely overachieving at 8-3 and three because even with a Bradley Beal MVP caliber season, they still were not able to get uh, into the playoffs. Uh, they got into the play-in, but they lost in the play-in. So I, I don't give them—I'm not going to say that they're going to keep this. Or Actually, they did get into the playoffs, but they barely— did anything there. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to give them the respect of an 8-3 and three team. They are definitely still overachieving. And my final team, uh, the Chicago Bulls. I've said a lot about how I liked how they remake their ro- remade their roster, but I said going into the year, I thought they'd be a 5-6 to six seed kind of a team in the Knicks range, uh, in the New York Knicks, Atlanta Hawks kind of range, well, at least preseason. Uh, not the not the way the Hawks are playing now. They are definitely not going to stay in that range. But I still think at 8-3 and three that that is better than the talent that they're putting out. And you know, they might be overachieving now, but as the year goes on, they might be able to sustain this. They do have a lot of talent. I just did not think it would mix this well this early in the season. So 8-3 and three to me is a shocker. All right. Who was your player of the week? I'm giving it to Kevin Durant. Uh, he had 32 points per game this week on 57% shooting, 8.3 rebounds per game, 4.5 assists. Uh, there were a lot of strong contenders this week, but a lot of them had, uh, well... There's one specific situation that I'll talk about in a second, um, but a lot of them were 0-3 in their games, including Anthony Edwards in Minnesota. Uh, some of them were 1-2, some were also uh, others were also 0-3. Um, and then there's Nikola Jokic, who had a great game, but he only played two games this week, and they didn't play well in those two games, and he got ejected in one of them, uh, as we all know now for that for uh, his little uh, in-the-back shove. And then Joel Embiid had probably the best individual game of the week. I believe he had 26, 13, and 7 or something like that. But that was the only game he played in this week, and I'm not going to give you player of the week for playing in one game. So I ended up on Kevin Durant because he played the most, his team played the best, and he still was the leading scorer of the week, and he was very, very, very efficient. He actually had the most efficient shooting night of his career when scoring 30 or more points uh, on, I believe, Wednesday or Thursday night. So uh, Kevin Durant been really, really efficient playing very well for the Nets, and they need it. All right, well, that wraps up our look at the NBA. Let's keep talking basketball as we move to a look back at the beginning of college basketball season. Let's start with your biggest upsets uh, at the start of the college basketball season. 
Well, I will start with Navy beating number 25, Virginia, 66-58 to on the road, might I mention. Uh, Virginia picked preseason to finish fifth, I believe, in the ACC, so a, definitely a good team. Um, but they did not come out and play well in this game against Navy, and uh, I mean, obviously it showed because they lost the game, but I, I wouldn't say that Navy is exactly a program that you would expect to pull off these kinds of upsets. They've never really been too great. I can't remember the last time they were in the NCAA tournament. Uh, maybe someone can, maybe a Navy grad can, but I definitely can't. Um, and just overall, I don't expect Virginia lose this early because of the style that they play, because as, as a lot of people say, defense travels, right? Uh, it also shows up earlier in the season. If you know how to play defense, typically right from the beginning of the year, you play well. And by the way, giving up 66 points is not a bad defensive output, but somehow their offense could not generate anything uh, to back that up. And they're also a very experienced team, so I wouldn't expect them to come out uh, to come out of the gates right at the beginning of the season so poorly. Uh, but they did. Uh, the next one is Miami of Ohio beating Georgia Tech 72 to 69. Now, this upset is not as bad as this Navy Virginia upset because, well, uh, Virginia was ranked to start the season, top four, top five in the ACC, depending on who you ask. Georgia Tech was picked to finish 10th in the ACC. Uh, they came off a miraculous win or miraculous run to claim the ACC championship last year, but lost a lot of that talent and did not play well in the regular season up until that point. It was really just a wide open ACC tournament. As if anybody remembers, a bunch of teams got knocked out due to COVID positives, and uh, they, overall the ACC was pretty bad last year too. I will I will mention that. Um, but that's just a surprising upset that a team from the MAC would go on the road and beat a team from the ACC. Uh, the next one. UC Riverside, after getting destroyed by UCLA, beat Arizona State on the road 66-65 behind a J.P. Mormon, no, not J.P. Morgan, half-court shot to end the game. Uh, literally an over-aggressive play by Arizona State on defense with one and a half seconds left. I don't exactly know if the plan was to try to go for a steal. I, I guarantee you it wasn't, actually. Um, but an Arizona State player went for a steal uh, on the inbounds pass, and because of that... I mean, obviously, you're not. it's not like you need to play lockdown defense on a half-court shot. If someone's going to make it, they're going to make it, and it doesn't really matter what kind of defense you play. Um, but he stepped into the shot, and he had no one in front of him. He just had such a clear lane that I think it definitely made it easier. There wasn't anyone near him because of the dude overplaying the pass uh, in, in on the inbound pass, and then he got the shot off, and it went in. He actually switched a half-court shot, which is very, very rare, and he also didn't even do it from the middle of the court. He actually did it almost from the out-of-bounds, like where near where the scores table is. Um, the next one, the Citadel beat Pitt 78-63. to 63. Another ACC uh, team. You might know the Citadel. Well, I'll get to that later. But you might know the Citadel is the team that Alabama schedules to get a fake bye week at the end of the season in football. Uh, and that's how I know them too. But apparently... Pitt is bad enough to lose uh, to them. But again, another team. Uh, caveat... Yes, they're an ACC team, and, you know, ACC teams are ACC teams, but this team was picked to finish third to last in the ACC at 12th. Uh, oh, so, like not, suppo not supposed to be a good team, but the Citadel are definitely not supposed to beat anybody in the ACC, and definitely not by 15 on the road. Uh, and that's what I was going to get at. Uh, Western Illinois beat Nebraska 75-74. to This one probably slipped under the radar because Nebraska is not a big-name team. They haven't been good in a while. But Nebraska has been a team who's won a lot of their non-conference games and just had a lot of issues in the Big Ten, uh, played teams close. They also beat Colorado, reportedly, in a secret scrimmage by 15 points. 
So for them to turn around and lose to Western Illinois at home, that is very, very surprising. Uh, I don't think it says too much about the Big Ten overall, because if you look at the rest of the Big Ten results, uh, they did not do too terribly. I mean, there are some other close games that I'll talk about later, but um, overall, the teams of the Big Ten have been doing well. Illinois had, I think, three or four players out and won by 30, uh, probably three of their four best players, and apparently they had you know, small forwards playing point guards like you do at the beginning of the year. I mean, actually, I'm being sarcastic, but it didn't really come out that way. But uh, Illinois has been playing injured, and that's kind of one of those things that uh, to start the season, you never want to see that happen. But if you're able to win uh, in spite of it, then it probably means good things for you in the long run. Uh, Nebraska, maybe not one of those teams that's going to be that good in the Big Ten. And finally, Northern Illinois went on the road and beat Washington 71-64. to Washington was also picked to finish last in their conference. Well, they were picked to finish second to last, actually. There was one other team that was picked below them. I think it was Cal. Um, but that, again, not supposed to be a good team, but it doesn't really matter because when you're playing teams like this, these are games that you schedule to, to win. win. Uh, you do not schedule these games thinking about losing to any of these teams regardless. Uh, so uh, it doesn't really matter to me. You don't lose to Northern Illinois. All right, well, let's take a look at some teams that almost made that first list. So these are close games, but games that shouldn't have been close at all. Lehigh took Rutgers to overtime, uh, but they did lose 73-70. to Again, that might be one of those ones in the Big Ten that maybe shows the Big Ten slipping up. But again, I will say one thing. The ACC had three teams go down in games that they shouldn't have lost. The Big Ten had some close ones, but only one of them actually ended up losing, which I think is the big deal that you have to go with here. Yes, Rutgers went to overtime with Lehigh, but in the end, they still won the game, and that's what's important. Uh, it'll look terrible come tournament time when they're looking at a whole resume, and maybe they're on the bubble, which Rutgers is a team that projects to be on the bubble, and they see, oh, they went to overtime with Lehigh in their first game of the year. There's clearly some issues there, and if they play a lot of close games, it will probably be one of those points that gets them excluded from the tournament, to be quite honest. Um, but as long as they can clean it up in the future, they'll be just fine. Uh, Hofstra took number 15 Houston to overtime. That probably more surprising than Rutgers and Lehigh, as Rutgers uh, tries to replace a lot of lost talent from last year. Uh, and Houston being a top 15 team, that was a Final Four team last year. Going to overtime with Hofstra is not a good look to start the year. Losing 83-75, to 75. Hofstra did. Obviously, Houston did not find a way to lose that game. That definitely would have been on the big upsets board. <laughs> uh, but game shouldn't have been close. It still was. Finally, well, not finally, but finally to get to one of the bigger ones that I wanted to talk about in the game that I was actually watching, Akron hit a shot, hit actually a three-pointer, and got fouled on that three to get a four-point play to take the lead over Ohio State with three and a half seconds left on the road against number 17 Ohio State. Ohio State had to drop, I mean, they drew up a pretty good play. Akron played some pretty terrible defense, and they left uh, Zed Key, I believe it was, open for a layup. Uh, Ohio State won the game off of that game-winning layup, but they won 67-66, to one-point win. Again, same thing as the ACC, where at least this isn't the Citadel beating Pitt by 15, but Akron should not be close to Ohio State. Uh, well, actually, other way. Well, it works both ways, but Ohio State shouldn't have left this game close. And uh, they just they just did not play well enough to keep Akron out of this game. And that ended up being their downfall in this, that they almost lost this game. And frankly, should have if there had been some a little bit of better defense on the final play of the game. West Virginia beat Oakland 60-53. Oakland, a team that actually made Michigan look pretty bad at the beginning of the year a few years ago. 
uh, but didn't end up <laughs> meaning too much because uh, Michigan ended up having a pretty good season that year and the year after, obviously, uh, having two great seasons and now ranked number six preseason. Uh, but West Virginia struggling with them, a team that's on the border of the rankings, not really, not really supposed to be as good as they were last year, lost a lot of talent. But they're still a decent enough team that I don't think they should be close with Oakland. I think that's pretty obvious. Most teams shouldn't be, uh, and any team in really a power in the Power Five should not be close with this team. Uh, and finally, number twenty-one Maryland beat George Washington seventy-one to sixty-four. This game took place on Thursday. Actually, took place yesterday. It was not a seventy-one to sixty-four where a team barely cut the lead down at the end of the game. This was truly. Uh, George Washington playing a good game and keeping the game close throughout. It was, I think George Washington actually might have had a lead at the half. Uh, Maryland had to hit big shots at the end of this game to extend their lead from two to five and five to seven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was kind of the, the summary of this game that Maryland just could not get George Washington to bow down to them and to lose this game easily. George Washington fought well but they were still 18-point underdogs, and they made it a 7-point game. So uh, Maryland probably shouldn't be that close either. But again, those are three Big Ten teams that played close games, but at least they didn't lose. All right, well, let's talk about a couple close games that we expected to be close that were interesting involving some big-name teams. Well, I would argue we didn't expect Kansas and, and Michigan State to be close, and it wasn't really too I close. Say, but close uh, I think on the scoreboard... No, I actually think that the scoreboard didn't indicate how close this game was. Really? I think this game was closer than an 87-74 to game. I think it was closer than a 13-point game. Um, I really think it could have been single digits by the end of the game. Michigan State made some runs to get back into it, but Remy Martin got too hot in the second half. Uh, and that propelled Kansas to that win. But, you know, overall, Kansas obviously supposed to be one of the better teams this year, number three ranked preseason for a reason. Uh, I definitely think they're in the national championship conversation. Obviously, they're ranked number three for a reason. Um, but I wanted to give some credit to Michigan State because I would, State. I would argue that Michigan State actually played the best out of any Big Ten team that wasn't Michigan, Purdue, or Illinois this weekend, or to start the season. I think Ohio State... And Maryland are the two other teams that you would place above them other than Michigan, Purdue, and Illinois. And those two teams played very close games against bad teams. Michigan State kept it decently close against a very, very, very good team uh, in a, not necessarily a hostile environment, but a very loud, a very pressure-filled environment playing at Madison Square Garden and also being the precursor to Kentucky-Duke, which is a great matchup, uh, but talk about that one in a second, but I'd like to give Michigan State credit because I really do think that they play better than almost all the other teams in the Big Ten, and honestly, I could see them ending the year better than Ohio State. I could definitely see them ending the year better than Maryland. Uh, There have been years in the past, I think, in the past, Michigan State has sometimes been rated number one, number two, and people have realized later, yeah, based on reputation, and people have realized later in the year that maybe they were a little bit overrated, and I think now you're seeing the opposite, where now people feel like, okay, now that they've underachieved a few times, let's rank them lower to make sure we're not wrong about them again, but this is actually, I think, a little bit too much of an underestimation in my preseason bracket. I had them as the number 24 overall team, not, not necessarily high up in the rankings. I think 26th, which is where they are. They are the they are the highest others receiving votes category team, but I think they should be in the rankings, and I think uh, I think they are being a little bit underrated, and I think even I would I think I'm even underrating them a little bit, and I actually think I'm more positive on this uh, after this performance than I was uh, than I am negative. So uh, a good game played by Michigan State, and then lastly for the close games, only two of them. Uh, they were actually both of the championships classes championship classic games. Champions classic, right? 
Champions Classic? Yes. Is that what they call it? Yeah, yes. okay. Look, they, they, a lot okay. of alliteration. A lot of alliteration. Yeah. A lot of C's. A lot of S's. First, don't care. Big games in Madison Square Garden tournament. Exactly. The Kansas MSU Duke Kentucky tournament exactly. is really what it is. Because uh, uh, they played at different... <laughs> they played in different play, places every year. Sometimes they play North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Duke... Uh, beat Kentucky 79-71, and really, it was a good win. I mean, I think that this was a really, really good Duke team, and I think that Kentucky also played very well. Kentucky has a lot of transfer talent, but the two things that these teams didn't have last year, Kentucky had a lot of transfers and a very talented freshman class, but none of them had played together whatsoever a single minute before going to Kentucky. They had no synergy. Uh, and I think COVID really affected them that they probably weren't able to practice as much as they thought they could uh, originally. And without practice and without playing with each other at all, I mean, they barely had a single player who were who, who played with each other before then. It, it wasn't like they had a few sophomores even, a few, and then a few juniors. They literally just had nobody who had any experience with each other. So I'm not all too surprised of how their season turned out last year. Duke, on the other hand, had some players who had played together. Now I feel like they've built it up a little bit. They don't... Last year, they had a lot of one-and-dones, and their experienced players weren't playing over them and weren't playing well. But this year, I actually think that, A, their freshman class is much, much better. It is a ridiculous freshman class. It's really one of those classes that you look at Duke and you say, yeah, that's a Duke team right there with a lot of guys who are going to be one-and-dones, but who are going to go immediately to the NBA and make huge impacts, not just... Not just a good class. This is truly a great class that they brought in. Um, but I think just overall, Duke also now has a few players from last year that had okay seasons. They were part of another good recruiting class because Duke always has good recruiting classes. But they were kind of these four-star guys that needed some time to grow as freshmen. But they got so much playing experience that now you mix them with the five stars of this year and the other four stars of this year and a few transfers. And now... You have a team that has a good amount of synergy for having a lot of freshmen on the team, at least. And you have a lot of talent, probably at least a top three talented team in the country. And I think the only reason why they're being rated so low is because they have a lack of synergy, obviously. But they still have better synergy than they did last year. Uh, and I think it won't take them as long to gel. And I think this is just proof of that. And I think that when we get to the end of the season, we'll realize that this team had a lot more synergy to start the season, which means that at the end of the year, they'll be clicking better. Uh, and that's what they've already started to do with this one over Kentucky. All right. Well, overall reactions to the start of the season, and you've given us one with Kentucky. What about something on the other side of that game? Well, this is overall overreactions to the Sorry. season, I would like to mention, because I don't want anybody to think that these are actually what I think now. Overall but, overreactions, my Yeah, bad. a little bit of a tongue twister, just like the Champions Classic. Exactly. Um, Overall overreactions, I got to start with Duke steamrolling the ACC. The reason why I say that is because this team is just too talented for me to consider them losing the ACC. There isn't a team like Virginia who is a little, or, or Virginia from a few years ago where they were just so scrappy on defense that they didn't really care about how many stars you had on your team. They didn't care about that kind of stuff. Obviously, no one actually cares, but they just kind of played in a style where they were just going to disregard whatever you did, impose their will on you on the defensive end, and score just enough to beat you. They would play teams, I mean, they played, I believe, the Zion Williamson-Duke team and only held them to like 45 points or something and won the game like 50 to 45, and that was kind of their style for a while. Um, but that that's not a thing this year, and North Carolina has a first-year head coach. Yep. This is Coach K's final year, so he's going to get them to play even harder. So it looks like North Carolina's not necessarily out of that mix, but probably not a strong contender. Florida State lost a lot of talent and didn't do the best job of replacing it. I mean... I'm not going to complain. They're still a top 20 team. I still believe they're a good team. But overall, and then obviously Virginia's loss at the beginning of the season just shows that 
the ACC, it didn't, it's not looking too great, and Pitt and Georgia Tech should be pushovers for a team like Duke. If you're going to lose to the Citadel and Miami of Ohio, you're definitely going to lose to Duke. So I, I think when they you add in some of those games that there's no real depth at the bottom of the ACC like there sometimes is, uh, or like there normally is, to be honest, and some of the top teams aren't even as good as they normally are, I just think that this sets up for an easy run for the most talented team, and that this year, that's Duke, and it's not very close. Uh, the next one I have to say, I think the season this year will turn out a lot like the college football season. I think it's already started to manifest itself in that way, that there's a lot of close games, a lot of upsets, by the way, a lot of close games and games that shouldn't be close, hint, hint, Cincinnati, um, and possibly the lack of any order of teams beyond number one. The one thing that I think that college basketball is missing is that there isn't a clear number one that Georgia is in the in football right now, obviously. Not going to get into, into too much football talk, but any team that averages giving up less than a touchdown is way better than every other team in the country. I don't think there's going to be that team in basketball. I think what could really be the telltale sign of that is how much does Gonzaga beat Texas by if they beat them? Uh, if Gonzaga steamrolls Texas, maybe they are the clear number one. Maybe bringing in the number one overall recruit to a team that was the championship runner-ups and barely lost a single game last year is the number one overall team, and it's not close. Uh, maybe UCLA beats Villanova by a lot, and Gonzaga struggles to beat Texas, and then you say, okay, UCLA might actually rival Gonzaga, just like their overall, just like their overtime game with them in the Final Four, just extend that out to the whole season to say who's the best team overall. But I also think you have to look at Kansas, who played well to start the season, Texas, we'll see what they do against Gonzaga. That's a big early test. I think you have to look at Villanova, who also have an easier or who have a big early test against UCLA. And also, I think you have to look at the three team, the big three in the Big Ten of Michigan, Illinois, and Purdue. Illinois has kind of slipped under the radar because Michigan has a lot more, has almost the same amount of talent returning, I would argue, and a lot more coming in. But Illinois had a lot of holdover talent from last year that didn't play too much, but when they did play, they were really good. I mean, you don't see very often a player being preseason all-conference second team when he averaged seven points the year before, and that is Andre Corbello for Illinois. Uh, and obviously, Kofi Coburn ranked at the top of the con- ranked at, at the top of the conference. I mean, if you look at the Big Ten all-preseason team, it's actually hilarious. There's one guard and there's four centers on it because that is what the Big Ten has turned into. It's just a league of a bunch of centers. <laughs> um, but I think Illinois has a, enough talent to do that. I don't think that Andre Corbello was that big of a downturn from Io DeSumo in terms of ball handling and everything. So I really think they could be a, a team that's as good as as a Michigan and as a Purdue. And I think Purdue is kind of in the same situation where they didn't have a big recruiting class, but they had a huge one last year. All the guys are holdovers. And they have Travion Williams, a big, strong center. And then they have Jaden Ivey, who was very, very inefficient last year. But if he can become efficient... He will be one of the top prospects in the draft. He will be one of the players in all of college basketball this year. So when you put that all together, there's a lot of talent in the Big Ten. And come tournament time, those teams will have played so many tough, close games against good teams. They will be battle-tested. They will be ready for the tournament. So I don't think there is a clear number one. And I just named nine teams that could be in contention for that. Uh, But I do think there are some that maybe might separate themselves early from the others. But I wouldn't rule out that Illinois looks eh earlier in the season. They look like the ninth or eighth team, but very, very clearly... And then later in the year, they start playing as well as maybe Gonzaga. I could definitely see that happening. So uh, I, I just don't think there's that separation. Yep. So you also you didn't mention explicitly, similar to college football, there's three teams in the Big Ten who are uh, national contenders, and uh, the ACC might be have a little bit of a down year. All right. Well, that wraps up our look at college basketball. It also ends this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please join us for our next podcast, which will be on Monday, November 19th, where we will see the accuracy of Patrick's weekend predictions 
and discuss the weekend's college football and NFL action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his weekend predictions that were posted yesterday, the 11th installment of our college football top 25 poll on Tuesday, and the first in-season NCAA basketball tournament bracket that will be posted on Saturday. All of that posted on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.